What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are going to talk uh, a fair amount today about the debt limit, the debt ceiling. You know, this whole thing that we have seen on the horizon. Well, I mean, you know, in some ways you see it on the horizon. As soon as you know there's going to be uh, a Democratic president and a Democratic president who doesn't completely control Congress. Um, But we've seen this on the horizon going back to uh, last fall or late summer. And if anything, we thought it would be much more on the horizon because at that point we thought it was likely that either the Dem- either the Republicans would control Congress entirely, and even if they didn't, uh, even if Republicans didn't win the Senate, certainly they would have a healthy margin in the House of Representatives. As we know, it didn't turn out that way. They did get in the majority, but only barely. And just because of the uh, legislative physics of how this works, the fact that it is a small, small, small margin empowered the Freedom Caucus people. And here we are. And something has happened. I just was writing a post about this before we started recording. And we're recording at our regular time, which is uh, just after 12 noon on Wednesday, so uh, May 3rd. And something has happened in the last, I don't know, 36 hours or so, where everybody has kind of sort of jumped to attention about what's happening. And uh, some of it is... Uh, that Janet Yellen announcement where she put out saying like, look, it's, you know, the, the tax receipts are a little weaker than we thought or, you know, weaker, you know, a little, little less money than we thought coming in right away. So we may hit this debt limit uh, as soon as June 1st and in all likelihood in early June. So that kind of focused everybody's attention. That's, uh, you know, four weeks out, give or take, maybe a few more days, but pretty soon. And then another thing that happened is the, the you know, the Times published this article yesterday basically saying uh, the president's top advisors are debating whether or not the debt ceiling law is constitutional. And so specifically, to, to, to phrase that in another way, whether the president can invoke the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to say, I am empowered by the Constitution, or, or perhaps a different, even yet another different way to say it, I am barred by the Constitution from defaulting on the government's debt obligations. Uh, And even more broadly, some of this gets into very technical finance stuff and government finance stuff, but it is also 
sui generis because most of the ways we talk about what is a debt default? What does it mean when a government defaults on its spending obligations? Remember, it has obligations, it has various spending obligations. Its, its debt obligations are just one of them. A lot of the concepts, terminology, and so forth of this question is framed around what happens when a government cannot fulfill its spending obligations. That's the operative question. That's when you worry. A government can't pay its bills. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a government that might choose not to pay its bills, even though it has plenty of money or it has access to plenty of money. And that puts a lot of the concepts and terminology sort of knocks them a bit off stride. But in any case, uh, the Times published that article, and that was both a driver and an indication, both at the same time, of people's perceptions of what's going on here suddenly kind of shifting. A lot of us have been saying for months, this is not like 2011. Uh, we're not, you know, I, I don't know if Joe Biden is going to, you know, how far is he willing to take this? Is he unmovable on the issue of negotiations? I at least know it is a categorically different situation than you faced in, in, in 2011 for reasons that I explained uh, in a post, uh, I think, yesterday. And basically, what it comes down to is this. Republicans are the same Republicans. In, in some cases, they're the same people, but the same basic mentality. They want to take the hostage both because they want to force these changes, but also because uh, it's also aesthetic. This kind of misbehavior appeals to their aesthetic of politics, for lack of a better word. So the Republicans are the same thing. And they're willing to shoot the hostage. They're willing to go over the cliff. It's the Democrats who have changed. And the reason they've changed is, and this is something that I don't think I know, the conventional wisdom in Washington, D.C. and on Wall Street in New York in the sort of the, the finance world has not understood. That is that that experience in 2011, where Barack Obama agreed to negotiate with this kind of parliamentary hostage-taking, parliamentary terrorism, and ended up agreeing to uh, a lot of fiscal retrenchment, you can call it austerity, a lot of cutting. Now, A, th there was the decision to you know, negotiate with terrorists, but there was also what was negotiated. That austerity, it is widely believed, and I think correctly among Democrats and a lot of macroeconomists, meant that it would take much longer to recover from the uh, uh, global economic meltdown of 2008-2009 than it otherwise would have. So bad decision in general, really hobbled the economy, and in some ways paved the way for Donald Trump because he would have had a faster recovery. Um, you know, every, everybody's got a reason for Trump. This is why we got Trump. This is actually probably one of the main reasons why we got Trump. Um, in any case, it became a foundational experience and lesson of a lot of, for lack of a better word, the democratic political governing class that that was a huge mistake that they can never repeat. Now, 
I think it's also a lesson that a lot of just ordinary rank and file Democrats and voters learn too. But in this case, that other thing is really key because the people who ran the Obama administration, and especially the people who were like one rung down, not the name people at the very top, but one rung down, those are the people who run the Biden administration today. And this is a foundational experience for them. You know, and I, I know a bit about this because I've, I've you know, I kind of live in that world to some, ex, you know, to some extent. It is a foundational thing. And, and Joe Biden's actually one of them in the sense that, you know, and it, there's some irony here because uh, Joe Biden is the one that Barack Obama actually put in place to negotiate the deal with Mitch McConnell. Um, but I know that he came away from that kind of like, wow. That was a big mistake, a big, big mistake. We can't ever do that again. Now, there are certain things characterological about Joe Biden that push in the opposite direction. And that's a big question right now. Um, But again, what people have not figured is it's not the Democrats of 2011. And this isn't a general sense of like, we got to try something different. It's something that all of those people have sort of collectively beaten into each other's heads. We can't ever do that again. A lot of people will say, and with good reason, well, it's still the Democrats. It's still Lucy with the football, right? So they're going to they're gonna cave once they realize that Republicans are, are willing to tank the global economy. And maybe they will, but I'm skeptical. And what I know is the case, it will not go down like it did in 2011. And I think what we've what we have seen in the last, uh, you know, the last 36 hours or so, again, with that Times article as both a signifier of the shift and further driving the shift is DC conventional wisdom saying, oh, wait a second, I'm not sure they're going to negotiate over this. And there's not a lot of time left. So what was that thing that, that, that was that, 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 you know, they're kind of that they've been chattering about on Twitter or in like, you know, uh, democratic leaning small magazines or websites and stuff about like trillion dollar coins or the fourth amendment. Like what, like maybe, maybe this is going to be, maybe this is going to get a lot weirder than we're thinking. And what I noticed is, is that after that times piece came out, all the sort of the insider newsletters in their next kind of, I, 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 I do read these things, um, you know, these things that come out, you know, each of the publications got like five or six of them and, and well, they've got like hundreds of them, but at least, you know, the major ones that I get and they all shifted towards like, Ooh, that's ceiling 14th amendment. What's the, what's the, what's the story with the 14th amendment where we got to, apparently this is real. Apparently the trillion dollar coin is real. All these kind of things. Now for what it's worth, I don't think the trillion dollar coin thing is real in the sense of, I don't think that's going to happen partly because it's it's weird. It's just really weird. Um, and that actually has a pretty big effect since a lot of this is perceptions and everything. The other thing that people don't talk about is it's got to be pretty inflationary. You know, the general idea is it's true. The government can create dollars, but you're supposed to create it in some relationship to productivity and growth. You don't just like say, all right, we're doubling the amount of dollars. You can, but that is inflationary. Or there's certain cases where, you know, if you're in a kind of a, if you're in free fall, um, like you were during COVID or the world financial panic, all that kind of blah, 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 blah. It's, it's not going to happen. But th- this, you know, just kind of saying 
debt limit, de- the debt ceiling is unconstitutional, or actually something that came up in this briefing that we did with Paul Krugman back in February. Um, there's something called console bonds, and there's various names for them. Um, and so I'm going to try to explain it to you uh, as an idiot would explain it, because I don't really have any kind of you know kind of deep financial mumbo jumbo knowledge and you probably don't either but let me try to explain it in a in a in a in a simpleton's way and that is this the law says you can't increase the national debt how much the government owes right okay but what if you put out a bond that actually has no face value you know normally a bond it's worth x the government will redeem it at x it's worth that much and it also pays some interest so you buy it you get it blah 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 what if it's what if it has no face value what if there's no value on the on the you know think of it as like a dollar bill even though it's not you know there's no there's no face value but it pays interest maybe forever well that's worth a lot would you buy something where the US government would send you 10 bucks till the end of time well yeah you'd buy that. But the point is, it has no face value. So it increases the obligations of the federal government, but not the debt. Because the face value, the debt in this context is measured in that face value, right? So maybe you can raise money, maybe you can borrow money without increasing the national debt. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's, that's just a word game, Josh. And who came up with this? Well, it's actually not a new idea. The, the Bank of England used to put these things out. Again, they were called console bonds. Um, but people talk about coupon, all this kind of stuff. But that's another thing you could do. And that has some attraction because you're not getting into the Constitution. It's just another weird thing that financial services people do. You know, so who knows? But we're kind of coming down to everybody realizing that this is different now. So that's something we're going to talk about today with my uh, co-host, Kay Riga. Uh, but before we do, uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Making cold brew doesn't have to be complicated. You can do it without a French press, without a grinder, scale. It's like you're like your uh, drug dealer or something like that. You don't even need a measuring spoon, even more like being a maybe a, a druggie there. Anyway, this is this is very... This is very off-brand for Grady's. Uh, A beanbag bundle from Grady's gives you exactly what you need to make perfect iced coffee. Just drop your beanbags in a pitcher, add water, and sleep on it. 12 hours later, you'll have 12 glasses of New Orleans-style cold brew ready to enjoy all week for less than a dollar a glass. It's a no-brainer. The only decision you'll have to make is original French vanilla or decaf. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kay Riga, you've been up on the Hill uh, recently, mainly asking about other questions, but maybe getting some of the vibes of... uh, the accelerating debt ceiling drama. So what's the story? What are you, what are you seeing? What are you hearing on, an, on the hill and off the hill? I would say, and this is something you've pointed out as well, but there still doesn't seem to be a really abiding sense of panic. Um, part of this, I think, is like you say, it is so ingrained in the fabric that Democrats will kind of just suck it up and be the adults in the room at some point that is that's driving this. I think also it's just such a deadline focused place that even the deadline of a month feels impossibly far off at this point. Um, I guess the biggest movement we've had is that Biden said he will meet with, you know, the 
the big four. So the, the congressional leaders from both chambers. It is really funny to me how thoroughly Mitch McConnell is trying to scrub his hands of this whole situation. Like every time he gets asked about it, he's like, oh, no, that's uh, that's Kevin McCarthy's thing. You know, we're, we're just going to follow the House's lead here, which not a usual posture for the Senate, which considers itself vastly superior to the House to take. Um, do you get the sense that his uh, his washing of his hands is just a general precautionary measure because whatever way this goes will be a disaster? Or do you think it's because he thinks this will ultimately get pinned on McCarthy and he just wants to like take a step back there? You know, it's funny because I was actually about to ask you that um, because, you know, uh, but I, I think it has to be a couple things. One is that this 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 certainly seems no win politically mm-hmm. and um it certainly seems no win politically so why would mcconnell involve himself right, right. it's just you know you, you have uh you have house republicans demanding a bunch of really unpopular stuff and if they don't get it they are going to do something super destructive and unpopular and you look at that and you're like, okay, not seeing a lot of, not seeing a lot of upside for me here, me being, you know, me being Mitch McConnell. Now, the concept has a lot of juice among core Republicans. You know, we're going to stick it to Biden, you know, put Biden in a, in a, in a headlock, basically. And I mean that in all the freight of that terms and kind of make him bend to our will. Right. And we're going to defund a lot of the, you know, a lot of the federal government and debt and all these kind of things. The specifics are not very popular. Uh, So I think at some level, at one level, McConnell's just like, dude, this is your thing. Don't don't pull me into it. But the other thing is, uh, and this this is what happened in 2011. If he is going to get involved, it's when it really breaks down and he's kind of called in to to fix things or to or to push past the impasse or something like that. And for that to but both of those considerations tell us that there's nothing to be gained for him getting involved now and you know getting into arguments with Matt Gates Gates and Jim Jordan and, and all this kind of stuff. There's nothing to be gained for that. So yeah, I think it's just this is messy. You're you know, you guys do. You guys are doing this, and and so do it. Don't don't pull me into it. The other thing, just to state the obvious, he's not in the majority, so mm-hmm. that's you know that's different. Yeah, and I think the biggest kind of flag of where we might go to me that has developed, you know, since we last recorded, is there were just a couple Republican senators indicating that they would be okay with uh, some kind of time limited extension, you know, whether that be 30 days or 60 days. And then, of course, there was, you know, a flurry of other Republicans saying like, no, no, we won't do that, blah, 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 which to me is just kind of meaningless at this point, right? Like the big next step in this process is going to be this big four meeting. And I think the positions that people kind of wishy-washily stake out at this point don't mean all that much. I think a lot is going to get shaped by how that meeting goes and the the attitudes of people inside it. Um, but the fact that at this point, you know, for, like I said, a month in congressional time when you have a deadline is like 
a year to normal people. They, you just don't even really start thinking about it till you get closer. Um, and, you know, in terms of the lawmakers, I'm sure their staffs are actually, you know, planning things. But four weeks out, maybe more, and you've already got some Senate Republicans going back on, I mean, they didn't make this promise, but McCarthy kept saying, no, no clean debt ceiling or debt lift, blah, blah, blah. And they're already willing to kind of buck that and say like, yeah, well, maybe we would. It just indicates to me that when push comes to shove, you're not going to get the critical mass of Republican senators being like, nope, we're going to kind of adopt the the Matt Gates position here and adamantly blow it up no matter what. Yeah, it's there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of strange stuff going on here. And one thing for us all to keep in mind is that, you know, there's a there's a budget that they have to come up with later in the year. And uh, the Democrats no longer control the whole government. So you are going to have a negotiation there and you might have a government shutdown there. You know, we've kind of normalized government shutdowns, which are absurd in themselves, but not, you know, not damaging at at the same level. And what the Biden what what the Biden people are saying is, look, you got to you got to pass a clean debt ceiling. We're not going to negotiate with you threatening to kind of drive the car off the cliff. But it's totally normal and appropriate that we're going to have to get into it when it comes down to writing next year's budget. Okay, so those both that that is very consistent and makes a lot of sense. It's not, you know, elections have consequences. They won the House of Representatives. They get a say in in next year's budget. Now, as you can imagine, that opens up various room for I don't know, kind of squishiness and understandings or something like that. Like, do they, you know? Conceivably, Biden could say, you know, Kevin, you're going to get some of this stuff. You're not going to get it with the, you have to do this debt ceiling first. Then we're going to have our negotiation. Um, so, and there's some wiggliness there. Uh, but uh, having said this, a good bit of what the Republican House members want, the actual budget stuff doesn't matter that much to them. It matters, sort of. What they really want is Biden to say, okay, I'm sorry. I, you got me. It's, it's a power play. So I don't think they're going to have, and I'm sure, I'm sure in whatever private context, when Biden and McCarthy are talking, Biden will say, hey, you're going to get some of this stuff. That's a budget negotiation. Maybe we'll have a shutdown, you know, kind of like, we'll get into that. Not over this. But, you know, and the, the other thing, you know, this came up in, we had a, we did a briefing with Adam Gentleson and I think, I think one other, I, I'm, I'm forgetting whether I'm conflating different things, but in any case, uh, it, it's the part with Adam Gentleson. Adam uh, is one of the big filibuster reform people, but he also worked on the Hill. I think he was, uh, I, I may be getting the exact job wrong, but he was, I, I think he was like deputy chief of staff and um, uh, comms chief for Harry Reid uh, was his kind of final job on the Hill. Um, in any case- Then he's back uh, now. Oh, I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't- Yeah, he's Fetterman's chief of staff. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, 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 that's great. I didn't, I didn't realize that. In any case, I may have gotten the job description. The point is he has worked at the highest levels of the Senate. He knows how the place works. And what, and this was back in, 
I don't know, November, December, something like that. We did this briefing. And I said, why don't they solve this now when they're still in control and just kind of take this time bomb away from, uh, from the Republicans? And when people bring this up now, one thing they don't figure clearly enough is Manchin and Cinema weren't going to go along with this. So the idea is they could have done it and just didn't think about it. That's not, that's, that's not really true. So it's important not to make arguments on the basis of assumptions that aren't true. But they could have tried to muscle those two, and they basically didn't even try. And what he said, I think, is accurate and just deeply revealing that it is this kind of clubby, risk-averse place, and people look at it and say, do I, Senator Josh, want to, you know, put a lot of pressure on myself, make myself the center of attention, kind of make all my colleagues uncomfortable by making a big deal about it when no one else is worried about it here? Am I going to just kind of make a crisis out of nothing? We'll deal with that later. It'll, it'll, we'll, we'll get to it. And like, I think that is a pretty accurate description. And it's a pretty bad description because that's pretty lame. But that is kind of how the Senate works. And I, I was struck what Kate said earlier, which I think is right, but sort of draws out the sort of the inanity of this institution. They are both um, uh, a month, a month. I've got so much to do in the next month. That's, that's, you're talking the distant future. How can I plan for, you know, how am I going to start on something that isn't due for a month? And yet at the same time, they're signaling, wow, I'm not even sure there's time to come up with a, a, a deal. We're like out of time. So they're both, they're, it's both too long to really focus anybody's attention and also not enough time to even solve it. That just, again, it shows you, it shows you the mentality of the Senate. But again, in their defense, this isn't really about the Senate. Mitch McConnell could come forward tomorrow and say, I'm passing a clean debt ceiling because that's just actually how you govern. And that wouldn't solve much because Kevin McCarthy would still be there. You still need, you still need to get it through the House. So Yeah. And just one thing I'll add uh, before we move on is that so the two Republican senators who have indicated their willingness to essentially kind of kick the can down the road are Rick Scott and um, Kevin Kramer. So neither of these being like, you know, the Mitt Romney-esque kind of uh, Republicans that Democrats usually have to gather to to do something kind of reasonable. These are, you know, Republicans super dependable Republican votes on the right flank of the party. And they're already, you know, kind of being voices of relative reason. So, you know, it's just it's notable who this is coming from already. Yeah. And I guess the, the you know, the funny thing, I mean, um, you know, Rick Scott, he's Rick Scott. So it's not like he's it's not. I think that he's getting any pangs of like, we are here to govern and enough of this high wire act. We have to kind of make sure that the government works for the people, blah, blah, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's more kind of like, oh, I want the crisis, but it's, this is, I've got something planned on June 1st. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to be in, 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 uh, I don't know, wherever it is, you can still ski in June. I don't know where he's going to be, but it's 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 not that they don't want to do the destructive stuff. It's just oh, it's a little. Can we? Because again, it's thirty days. It's not changing anything. It's a scheduling thing. When are we gonna? When are we gonna schedule this train wreck? So, you know. So the other kind of big 
nexus of stories we wanted to talk about is the various uh, rot of the judiciary system. Um, and we'll, we'll start with yesterday, the Senate Judiciary hearing uh, Committee had a hearing on Supreme Court ethics. And this is the hearing readers will or rather listeners will remember was the one that Durbin sent John Roberts a letter asking him to come or a justice of his choice to come and testify before them after the string of various light to heavy Supreme Court corruption stories, the worst of which uh, centered on Clarence Thomas. So Roberts, you know, gave essentially a letter form of a, yeah, fuck off, I'm not doing that in response. Um, And so they had this like, just kind of weak sauce replacement hearing where they had a panel of, you know, expert witnesses, like former judges and uh, law professors ranging across the ideological spectrum to weigh in on, you know, whether or not the Supreme Court should constrain itself with an ethical code, which is just, it's funny. And, you know, I was there, I was in the room and it's funny in and of itself because that's such a tiny corner of this enormous problem. Like, should the Supreme Court have an ethics code? Yeah, probably. You know, yeah, they should have to sign a little thing that says they won't, you know, take trips on private jets from billionaires. That's, that's cool. But it's just, it's such like, a microscopic part of this huge problem of having a judiciary that is overwhelmingly right-wing, unabashedly partisan, and that many of the judges came up through this like pipeline of kind of right-wing reactionary to Supreme Court justice, which is funny because the the kind of right-wingy experts during the hearing would say things like, you know, I, it, it doesn't make a difference, you know, if, if Clarence Thomas hangs out with Harlan Crow or, or Samuel Alito, you know, goes out to dinner with these like uh, anti-abortion activists or whatever. And it's like, that's probably true. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody's making the case that like if they hadn't done these exact interactions, they would have been liberal justices. Like that's not the problem. The problem is that you have basically unfettered power in the hands of nine unelected people, which has come to a head because Donald Trump fairly and unfairly got three appointments. And that's where we are now. Um, And so this hearing was so... It so felt to me like the worst tendencies of Democrats because this was the reaction, the kind of forced hand reaction of the outcry in response to these stories, which kind of revealed a fact we all know to be true, but put it in just angering color and detail. And so this was the response and kind of just the best they could muster. And again, Senate Judiciary, this is one of the kind of like supposed to be a heavy hitter committee, you know, getting onto this committee is a big deal. It's one of the one of the kind of like primary powerful in the spotlight a lot committees. And just almost every Democrat just kind of focused on you know, every other tier of judge has an ethical code. You know, the the different departments in the government have an ethical code. Why doesn't the Supreme Court have an ethical code? Which, again, like, sure, no one's arguing that, but it's just such this muted response to this really angering prompt. And then you have the Republicans as Republicans 
you know, never have a muted reaction to anything, just railing, yelling and yelling about uh, Schumer's remarks at an anti-abortion rally three years ago, going back over and over again to Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing as proof that these justices have always been treated shabbily by the left. And this is just, you know, the newest uh, in the left's just utter lack of capacity to lose court cases. And so they throw tantrums and they go after these refs who are just doing their best. And it's just, you know, if you were an alien who dropped down and watched this hearing, you'd be like, yeah, you know, these Republicans have been done wrong. You know, like they have grievances. They have good reason to be angry. And you would have no idea the reality of this situation, which is just an out of control right wing court that has already ripped away a constitutional right and, you know, may well be on the way to take away more. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of, you know, there's a there's a binary nature to what they did in the Dobbs decision. But there's others that are that are less binary that they've done something similar to and the basic point is now that they have total power and increasingly over the last 7 or 8 years as they as they were pretty close to having total power they've tossed aside any sense of of any any pretense of we've got the power it sucks to be you and we're just going to do everything we want to do. And we'll kind of like say, oh, it's this theory or that theory. But we're barely even going to like kind of go through the motions there. And they do have that power, at least to the extent that the other branches do not uh, contest their power. And, you know, the real corruption of this court is that, is their decision to operate far beyond their actual remit and function as basically one of the two parties operating uh, within the judiciary. And, um, you know, that is what I'm talking about when I talk about the corrupt Supreme Court. Uh, and then in the last, uh, you know, month or so, we found out, well, there's actually a lot of venal corruption, too. Got Clarence Thomas. We got something with Gorsuch. Uh, you've got stuff that is not quite clear cut, but not great with uh, Roberts, the chief justice. And... You know, this idea, should they have a code? Just pass a law. The idea that Congress does not have the power, that the other branches don't have the power to impose basic, you know, basic set of standards for those judges is absurd. It's really absurd. So we're already kind of like, well, could you could you just come up with a law that you'd agree to follow? Would that be cool? I mean, as you say, that's pretty low energy to start with. But what it really, you know, what it, how this stuff, how this stuff really comes together is it's true. You know, Clarence Thomas didn't need this crow guy to 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 make him, uh, you know, reflexively always vote for this kind of far right, anti regulatory kind of anti state jurisprudence. He's already there, you know. It was just kind of a thank you when he bought Clarence's mom's house, you know, and did all the kind of, you know, redecorating and renovation and stuff like that. So, yeah, at a certain level, why does it matter? But what it comes down to is they are not will like you have all this power for the moment. It is totally unconstrained. 
You're just doing anything you want. And you can't even go through the motions of not be getting these kind of like sweetheart kickbacks from your billionaire pal. So kind of does it, you know, does it matter? Well, it's not probably, it's probably not affecting the outcome of these of of these uh, cases, and probably not in a way that is meaningful to many. You know, the, you know, is he going to like kind of shoot down Harlan's case? Probably not, because they're buds. But whatever Harlan's case is, it's probably something to do with, you know, some kind of weird land stuff down in, you know, kind of landlord land stuff down in Texas. Probably doesn't matter to that many of us. Um, but it's part of this larger thing. They. Beyond all the, beyond the deepest corruption, they can't even go through the motions of not being venally corrupt because they don't care. Because you know what? Because you know what the jurisprudence is? The jurisprudence is sucks to be you. That's the jurisprudence to everybody else. It sucks to be you because we have six justices, six. You can send up some here about like, you know, the constitutional right uh, to watch Fox News. You got it, guys. We got six. Send us anything you got. And it's the thing that's so rankling about all this is obviously we know Congress has kind of limited ability to rein in the court, mostly because there aren't the votes there to do the like drastic measures that would actually fix something. And that includes all the, you know, the expand the court stuff adding more seats, uh, deciding that there are certain things that aren't in the court's jurisdiction. There's just, there's no way they're going to do it. But the thing is, there isn't even like a lower level conviction to hold any of the justices to account. You know, there's been some kind of chatter among people who specialize in weird arcane Senate procedure online about the fact that you might be able to, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, have a proxy vote in the place of an absent senator specifically for issuing subpoenas, that this wouldn't work for like getting confirmations through, but that there's precedent for it working with subpoenas. Um, And even if this is one of those maybe edge cases, you know, where it's kind of like, you know, the parliamentarian decides if it's legitimate or not. I mean, you would think at the very least that they would the Democrats would a be aware of this and b be at least actively talking about trying it right you know maybe try to get Clarence Thomas to force him to come before the court and at the very least embarrass him for like you know slipping on his sandals and walking around with Harlan Crow and like all the Federalist Society in his time off but I you know I went around uh, a bunch of the different members of the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday and kind of asked them you know have you have you heard about this? Is this something you're talking about? And like, no one had any idea what I was talking about. Um, and, you know, most of them who gave me a solid response were just like, no, I don't think that's a thing, you know, or like, uh, no, that wouldn't work. We're just, we're stuck till Feinstein gets back kind of thing, which is like, so uh, it's, it's Senate brain, but it's a specifically Senate Democrat brain to just kind of like accept, oh, well, this is the limit. I'm not really going to try to like be creative or be forceful in any kind of way, just, you know, accept that we can't do it. And that the only thing that uh, this term has any excitement for, for our democratic constituents at all, which is 
judges, you know, confirming them and perhaps holding the corrupt ones to account. We're just like, we're not going to do because Feinstein's out. So, you know, I guess, I guess that's that. And we'll just, we'll leave it there. Yeah. I mean, you know, some stuff, they may well be constrained, but what often, and I think it is worth saying that uh, senators do not only represent and work for uh, journalists and political junkies and so forth. You know, they also represent normies who kind of aren't as focused on some of these things. Um, but uh, at this point in our history, you don't have to be like a total political junkie as a Democrat to be tuned into the fact that judges are a problem. The, the federal judiciary is a big problem. It's way too stacked uh, uh, towards the GOP. So these aren't like crazy rando things that, that we're talking about. And, you know, maybe they are stuck, but you know, then they would say kind of like, yeah, you know, we're, 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 we looked at the proxy thing. It, it, for these three reasons, it doesn't seem like that's going to, it's going to fly and this, that, and the other. Uh, but what you often have, have is something more like, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about. What, what, what kind of strange thing are you talking about? You want to, you want to bill for subsidies for hydroponic weed growing? What kind of weird, on-the-margin, crazy-ass stuff are you talking about? That is the kind of response you get, Not maybe not literally those words, but kind of like, oh, you people, we got big, bigger fish to fry here in the Senate. Uh, and it does, it, that is Senate brain, kind of like always with this, always with this kind of assumption of like, out in the boondocks or wherever, wherever kind of weird, political, bloggy, bloggy weirdo stuff you're talking about. I'm sure that seems pretty important. We've got some pretty big stuff we're doing here in the Senate. And you're sort of like, you know what? You, 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 I don't think you quite understand. You, the, the, these voters put you there and you should at least take some cognizance of what they're talking about. You know, even if you can't quite get everything done. And I would say it's not, it's not, it's not, it is Senate brain. It's not just Democrats. It's that Republicans stopped practicing Senate brain about 20 years ago, give or take. And it's, it's annoying. And, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, but Dick Durbin is one of the worst for that. He's the worst. He is the worst. And he's the, he's the, he's the chair of the Judiciary Committee. And he's always that, you know, kind of like, he's always the one like, oh, well, you know, puh, got this norm and procedure and we're all dear friends up here. We're not going to go down that path. And he's also, you know, anytime any Democrat kind of steps a, just a little over the line or gets kind of close to the line or says something a little controversial, you can basically expect he's going to, there is a, you know, the gravitation of a star over at Meet the Press, sucking him over there to appear on TV and, uh, you know, talk down whoever that was. He's, he's, he's the worst. He's I the mean, worst. Such an encapsulation of this happened at the hearing where it was one of these that I have been at before where they are just soporific, low energy. Most of the time, the senators aren't in their seats. They kind of come back in time for their questioning and then they leave again. So tons of repetition because no one's listening to each other. And 
the way these usually go is then they get to one of the you know, loud Republicans. So in, in this case, Ted Cruz is on Senate Judiciary. So it's quiet. No one's paying attention. It's boring. And then it gets to Ted Cruz and he you know screams for two minutes and it kind of like wakes everyone up again. And while he's doing his, you know, his performance to get his clip so he can get on Fox News that night, he is doing some kind of both sidesy like, well, and here's all the rich people in America that the liberal justices are friends with. Um, and so at one point he says he's talking about the Pritzkers, you know, that's the the family that uh, the governor of Illinois is from. And they're just kind of one of these like big name Democratic institutions. His sister was had a big position under Obama and maybe does now with Biden. Maybe right. Yeah. yeah, they're they're big. They're big players, very wealthy and they're big players. And so Durbin has physically turned his back to Cruz like during this kind of performance and is just like on his phone, not not really listening. And Cruz is like, you know, I'd be surprised if our chairman hasn't dined with the Pritzkers multiple times, which like just for one second, imagine that role reversal. If a Republican was the chairman and you had a Democrat just kind of like tossing out in the litany, like, by the way, uh, you know, this this guy sitting three seats down for me is corrupt as well. Um, and all Durbin just kind of sat there and like shook his head. And then uh, Ted Cruz wanted to enter something into the record. And he was like, yeah, OK, fine. And then when that was over, he just like went on to the next person. And it's, you know, it's not that I, Durbin is like a bad person or that he doesn't care about this stuff. But it's just this kind of preternatural uh instinct to just that comedy and getting along and decorum are just these like hugely important tenets of Senate operation, which at moments like this, when there's just like raw fury about the fact that we're, we get stories every week about women being told to like go bleed out in the parking lot some more before a hospital will take them. It's just so, so such an ill fit. And so disappointing and demoralizing to the people who are watching, just like waiting for any kind of iota of emotion, of anger that they see like reflected in the people who are supposed to represent them. Yeah. And 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 just to be clear, I, I'm sure Dick Durbin is a dear person. Uh, you know, I'm sure he's a very nice guy. And when it comes to choice, when it comes to all the issues, I, I don't think I don't think he's on the wrong side of them. I don't think he's indifferent to them. I think he cares about them. I think he is in that sense. I think he is a, you know, solid middle of the road Democrat. Um, you know, when he puts out a statement saying, Dobbs, this is terrible, blah, 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 blah. I think he believes it. I don't think he's a hypocrite. I don't think he has bad values. But I think he is, when I say he's the worst, I mean, he is really a paragon of that senate brain thing like you're a you're a fine person you you believe in x y and z but that doesn't mean you're gonna rock the boat in the senate or or or, or not do one of these kind of arcane little things of blue slips or pink slips or right. green slips that mean this that and the other that's what i mean that he's the worst i'm not saying you know, I'm not saying those other things, but this thing that seems kind of, you know, can seem sort of picayune or, ne or negligible as a thing is actually a pretty big deal when it comes to um, it mattering who's running the Senate, 
It's right. a it's a it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna loop back to our good friend Ted to fin- finish out the episode. But just kind of one more piece on this Senate slash Judiciary thing is that Maisie Hirono, who also sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee, introduced a bill last week called the Stop the Judge Shopping Act, and it, it's quite short, but the point of it is any time that someone is asking for a national injunction against a federal law or action, so in other words, asking a judge to hand down a ruling that doesn't just apply to the people listed on the lawsuit, but that would bind the entire country. Every time someone tries to do that, it has to start at the D.C. District Court. And so the point of this is that these right-wing litigants can't keep, you know, bringing up a lawsuit, asking to ban Mifepristone, and then going right to, uh, you know, Amarillo, where they know there's a Trump judge and where they know he'll hand down a national injunction and kind of block the drug for the whole country. Uh, You know, this would kind of cut down on the forum shopping piece of it. And this is, you know, it's along the lines of what experts have been saying, like, is the only way to fix this. You have to kind of set up a, a separate track when you're asking for relief that would apply to the whole country or else this is going to keep happening. Um, and so she she introduced this bill. And, you know, I also kind of spent yesterday asking uh, the Senate Judiciary Dems and the other kind of specifically judge-focused uh, Democratic senators if they would you know, if they support it, if they're planning a co-sponsor, it kind of thing. And the only person who even knew about the existence of the bill was Elizabeth Warren. Everybody else was like, oh, you know, I haven't looked at it. It it sounds good. You know, uh, judge shopping is a problem kind of thing. And it's just, you know, part of it is legislative reality. I get it. Like the House Republicans are never going to make any bill that Senate Democrats are championing law, and particularly not when it would kind of like disrupt this very pleasant string of guaranteed legal victories that they have. But it is just another example of this dynamic we're talking about, which is you've got this thing that's creating enormous energy and backlash and anger and just, you know, the, the disposition to just be like, oh, well, yeah, uh, not, uh, not so much our purview, right? Like we are angry too, but, you know, acting as if they have like no power or no bully pulpit that matters, you know, as if getting behind this bill and talking about it, you know, wouldn't make an iota of difference. Like, yeah, it, it probably wouldn't change the way things work right now. But the only way that these things become law kind of down the road is because you have to inject them into the public bloodstream and get people who aren't just kind of like journalists and legal wonks aware of what's going on. So you can kind of build momentum behind it. And the next time you have the numbers you need, it's first on the docket and you get it through before other crap just comes in and clutters it out. You know, Uh, it's just it really is this like overwhelming sense of inertia, even in the face of, you know, this kind of huge norm breaking shift in American politics. Yeah, it's 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 almost as if the senators, many of whom are have only been senators for a sh- for a short period of time, you know, many of whom are younger than I am, are still operating back in the sort of the like the Lyndon Johnson days when the conversations with reporters are mainly just conversations with reporters that will never see the light of day anywhere in public, and if they do, only the sort of the top line quote will 
you know, we'll, we'll do that. It's not like today where there is a more kind of transparent kind of reporting uh, that we do and others now also do that like clips of these conversations, you know, uh, go out on social media and stuff. And, um, you know, because at a certain level, it's true that bill is obviously not going to go anywhere in this Congress because because uh, House Republicans are never going to uh, vote for it. But when you do this kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, I heard something about that. I don't, you know, yeah, guess, blah, blah, blah. You can't have what these what these people don't get. You cannot have this massive backlash against how did this abortion drug thing happen? How did this happen? How could this happen? Right? How does this absurd thing happen? Everybody's upset. Um, the uh, Democratic Party rightly is is encouraging that upset. Um, and you have a senator saying, oh, yeah, did, was there something about that? I Someone mentioned that because people see that and they think, is the fix in here? Am I a chump? Because I'm really upset and I'm getting donor email, I'm getting fundraising emails about it. But when you talk to this person, you don't even know about the bill and you and it's sort of like it seems like you don't care. And like that is I don't think they get the deeply enervating and um, acidic nature of those kind of comments on the trust that has to exist at some level between voters and the representatives who are either literally their representatives or the people who in a partisan context they see as representing their interests. Now, that doesn't mean that senators can't talk without doing some big sort of performative mumbo jumbo, right? Um, but there's got to be a balance because, and, and because in some cases, it's like they don't even, they haven't even heard about it. You have to at least say, we've got to do something like that. Right now, the House is in Republican hands. So I'm not focused on it because they're not going to, they're never going to pass it this time. But it's important. I think we should bring it up for a vote just to make clear where we stand on it. You know, because again, you, that, that sense of people see the dis, it's almost like an, it's almost like an osmotic gradient. If the gradient, if the difference is too big, it becomes unstable. And people see that and they do think like, you know, maybe, maybe my uncle who says they're all crooks and it's all a show is right. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the chump here. Maybe the fix is in and you're playing me for fools. And that is, I don't have to say so toxic and it's more toxic for Democrats than it is for Republicans mm -hmm. because Republicans, the cynicism about government, the cynicism about representative democracy is mostly an advantage for Republicans because right. of the way they operate politically. So it's just toxic. And, um, you know, like I said, it's not like Dick Durbin has to be, you know, whip out a resistance placard in front of the reporters <laughs> and kind of go off. But a little more sense of kind of like, what are we here for? And who sent us here? And who who do we need to who do we need to have our backs at the next election? Kind of th think about that a little in those moments, which too many of them just don't. Because 
they see it as kind of beneath them. That's true. Right. They do. Even if even if they care about the issues, you know, it's it's beneath them to have to kind of connect the dots, and it shouldn't be. Right. So let's uh, wrap up with we had an election announcement um, that was kind of leaked earlier the week this week and then came out officially today, but which is uh, Representative Colin Allred announced that he is going to challenge uh, Ted Cruz in 2024, which our listeners, I'm sure, remember uh, very clearly the last time that Cruz was challenged, which was the big Beto O'Rourke run in 2018, um, where, you know, he Put up a good fight for Texas. I thought wasn't it, wasn't he, it like three percentage points? Yeah, like it was what, pretty close. Yeah, it was. It was like I mean, even that night, it was a little touch and go about what mm-hmm. the result would. I mean, obviously, a lot of Democrats thought he might win. Um, he didn't win, um, and it wasn't a photo finish. But I do think it was like two or three percentage points or something like that. It wasn't like one of these races where people convince themselves it's going to be close and it's like, you know, 45, 55 or something like that. It was pretty close. And I, you know, it's funny because did you find out the actual, did you? Yeah, it's it's like uh, less than three, three points, three percentage points. Right, so yeah. That's pretty close, and I yeah. and I think that um, you know the the uh, the counter would be 2018 first bite at the apple with Trump. That's a you know maybe that's your high water mark. Um, but you know Texas, I you know basically I'm not terribly optimistic. Texas is a really hard nut to crack. It's not Georgia. It's still it it is it's moving, but it's not there. All that kind of stuff. So big and so expensive. Yeah, and it's a ma- it's a massive, massive state. Um, and, uh, and having said that, and I was actually I, I noticed some uh, one tweet from Bill Crystal, uh, the sort of defrocked Republican. I don't know exactly what Bill is at this point. Uh, and then and then a quote from the publication he's associated with, the Bulwark. Uh, and basically, that what what. And I, and I think this is accurate based on what Allred's uh, announcement was. He's not, he needs to try to departisanize it as much as he can in this sense that he's not saying Texas needs a Democrat to represent it in the Senate. That's not going to, that's not going to, that's not going to win, obviously. What he's basically saying is this dude, Ted, is just a self-promoting dickhead. And Texas deserves better, which A, is true and isn't a bad argument. It's not a bad argument. And um, Allred comes from, I think it's outside of Dallas, Fort Worth, I can't remember. You know, one of these suburban Texas districts that are trending blue, similar to what's happened in Georgia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It's not, it's, he's got sort of a... um, you know, what do they call it? Like front, I think it's one of those kind of frontline districts, you know, kind of a, kind of a swing district. Um, I think he's, I think he came in in 2018. So I guess he's mm-hmm, starting his, right. yeah, starting his third term. Uh, he's a former, uh, former professional football player who uh, became a lawyer and he had some positions in the Obama administration. So that whole, you know, he's got a, got a, a few different things to uh, play to. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not terribly optimistic because it's Texas and it's still basically Texas, but it's possible. And, um, you know, uh, 
when you wouldn't have thought that I mean, who would have thought that Georgia could have two Democratic senators? I mean, some a number of people had to kind of really put I mean, wasn't quite it wasn't quite the risk that Allred is doing because he has a job. He's at, he has a day job, right? And he's giving up his house seat to do this. So that's a risk. Um, O'Rourke took that risk too. But I suspect he will come at it a bit smarter than O'Rourke did. And I, I don't mean that's the wrong way to put it. I think we learned a lot from how it went with O'Rourke because he's a pretty dynamic, compelling guy politically, right? He's not some nebbish. He's got sort of the spark. He brought a lot to it. Um, you know, he did get, I guess, after, not sure how much afterward, you know, he got big into the gun stuff, which that's not going to cut it in Texas. I mean, I am I am 100% on we got to deal with guns, but I'm not sure that's what you what you really focus on. You're, you know, when you're running in, in, in Texas, it's just not. And, and I think he'll kind of come at it a little differently. Cruz is not popular. He's just not. Um, I think in this quote I heard kind of, you know, they're going to portray him as a, as a, uh, a guy with a podcast who's got a side gig as senator, <laughs> which that really is the case, right? Yeah. He's like, he's got that like kind of, uh, uh, oh God, what's the Shapiro guy's first name? Ben. Yeah, he's got sort of like a Ben Shapiro vibe type type podcast with a video feed and everything. And he's got the whole Ted racket and, and you know, he's got the thing of going to Cancun and, you know, <laughs> no one likes Ted. It's just that it's not quite like it, but it's sort of like this. This is why I hope Gavin Newsom, Newsom if the chance comes up, does not appoint another person who wants who wants that California Senate seat. Because you've really got to fuck up to lose Senate seat as a Democrat in California. It's, it's basically a lifetime position, certainly once you've gotten elected once. And uh, Cruz has that going for him. Um, and like I said, just keeping it real, not optimistic, but it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, and fundamentally, we know the cycle is going to be rough for Democrats, right? Like they have to retain a lot of competitive territory, including, you know, West Virginia, which no one really seems to think that Manchin has any shot at winning since he's going against this like uber popular uh, governor and, and Manchin himself uh, <laughs> keeps not announcing, which, you know, separate issue for a separate podcast, but is getting me stressed that he's going to launch some no labels presidential bid. But the thing is here in a tough cycle where you have to defend a lot, it does not hurt to force your opponent to have to defend their home turf. And like, you know, Allred is a a good candidate, right? He's not some like rando who's going to have no appeal in Texas. Um, Cruz is going to have to spend, is going to have to work against him. I'm sure, you know, 2018 is going to be fresh in his mind. He will remember the fact that he had to work for that one. They're going to have to spend national money defending a Texas seat. And like we said, Texas is expensive. So that's no small thing. Um, and that is just a, you know, a better situation for Democrats to be in, even if he doesn't win, you know, even if he kind of teaches us something else about running statewide there the way that Beto did. All that stuff is cumulative. You know, Georgia didn't happen in one cycle. It was a trial and error, learning, developing the scaffolding and the infrastructure in the state to run. That stuff is all important. And that's the only way you get Texas back in the blue column at any point, you know. And then meanwhile, I'd rather have that than uh, in Nevada, Jackie Rosen is up this cycle. And that's one of you know, Nevada's always close. It's going to be close. And 
we just had Jim Marchant uh, announce that he's running. And he's one of these like Looney Tune conspiracy theory guys who ran for Secretary of State and lost. And, you know, Democrats don't have a candidate problem like Republicans do. So when there is an opportunity and a willing person like Colin Allred, who is a, you know, a likable guy who's got an interesting history who can make the case, you run, you know, maybe he upsets and wins. And if he doesn't, again, that is the work you've got to put in to get these white whales, you know, to finally follow the Democratic column. Yeah. And 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 a key point is that we remember what we mean when he, when we say it's a really tough year for Democrats. It's not because like, the popular will is running against them. It's possible that it will be by then, you know, but but we don't know that. It's just that they're defending everywhere. And so they have to sort of, you know, kind of win everywhere to hold, to hold their own. And so, you know, Ted is always going to have a hard time, you know, in, in a re-election if any serious candidate runs against him because he sucks and no one likes him. And again, it's not like... Uh, it's one thing if people who disagree with his politics don't like him. No one likes Ted. He's not a likable guy. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, you make them work for that. And and they will have to pour money into that because they could lose that. I mean, again, they came pretty close to losing uh, six years ago. And, and I will say, you know, uh, six years is a, in the rate of demographic change in many parts of the country right now, six years is a pretty long time. And I'm not saying, you know, Joe Biden's not going to win the electoral votes in Texas. I'm not saying, oh, Texas is turning blue. What I'm saying is, is that it could be, it could have become marginally blue enough in certain suburbs that a strong candidate like Allred running against an inherently weak candidate like Cruz has a shot. It's possible. It's possible. That's going to be an exciting race. I'm just kind of, you know, just kind of putting my cards on the table. If I had to bet, I wouldn't bet for, for all red, but, uh, but it's possible. And, and it's always, it's always, um, you know, Ted always shed some dignity. What little is, what the little, what little there is left in one of these races. So, you know, bring it on. Yeah, I mean, and the bare reality of it is that, Senate math favors Republicans, you know, Democrats can't just run everywhere where it's easy. So, you know, good for good for him for kind of mounting a bid. And like you say, I mean, look at how the the Beto Cruz race went last time, you know, Democrats didn't win, but my God, it attracted attention and excitement. And that stuff bleeds into other races, too. I mean, that is just as valuable a commodity for the Democrats as, you know, probably more so than these seats when it's a guaranteed win, you know, that stuff is important. And especially, you know, like you said, in this cycle, that is just so much defense, you're gonna have to generate kind of excitement wherever you can get it. And it's it's important to distinguish that, you know, there's been a whole debate among Democrats about uh, I'm, I'm spacing on her name, but the woman who uh, ran first against one in in Kentucky, she ran against uh, one of the House guys, then she ran against McConnell raised a ton of money. Amy um, McGrath. Yes, McGrath. Uh, she raised a ton of money because it's you can raise a ton of money among Democrats when you say you're running to retire Mitch McConnell. And right. there's this whole debate that money was wasted. You were never going to beat McConnell in 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 Kentucky. Um, that all blah, 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 blah. Um, I think that's basically true in the sense of 
you raise a ton of money with a race that is never going to happen. Uh, it's also important to run hard everywhere, but you don't necessarily need a sort of an insane amount of money allocated to the race you know, that, that is basically no hope. It's really important to recognize that, that Ted Cruz is a very different thing. It'll always be close and it's worth investing because maybe 35% chance you do get that seat. And that's a big deal if you have a seat in Texas. That's a not quite game changing, but it's a it's it's a it's a big deal. And I guess more generally, I always, I always feel that there's less of a it's less zero sum than I think a lot of people make it out to be. People people want to put some money up against McConnell because they don't like him because they you know it it's it's why you it's probably related to why you buy the lotto ticket at the supermarket, right? And in a to a significant extent, I don't think there's um, a finite pool of money out there that Democrats writ large have to get have to give. They give, you know, it, it's more elastic than that because people just like they're emotionally involved and and you know right. so we shouldn't and think you know, about too much in zero sum terms yeah totally and just the last point i want to make here is that even a losing candidate who drives a ton of attention and energy and money has coattails so totally you know these people kind of running big exciting races and then losing doesn't mean that nothing was gained it means that people who probably wouldn't have shown up for the the bottom of the ticket showed up and probably voted you know democrat all the way down and maybe that netted some state level seats or maybe that helped a house, house candidate. Seats. Yeah, yep. yeah, no. Oh, that's always the thing that in in in, you know, there's certain cases like, you know, Idaho or something like that. But if you and and there's a very important big race in um Ohio in in 2024 with Sherrod Brown's seat and you know, he won in 2018, I, you know, he has a a real kind of uh, lock with that state, but no one, no Democrat has a lock with that state. Uh, so th- that's an example of that's a must win. So it's 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 not a great great example. But if we look at uh, 2022, there, uh, yes, um, uh, the Democrats lost that Senate battle, um, Tim Ryan, but Tim Ryan almost certainly brought at least a couple House members over the line. So it's not wasted money, right? And you learn things and all that kind of stuff. So anyway. Yep. I think we've we have we have imparted the wisdom that we have to impart <laughs> in this on this question. Uh, let me remind you the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get twenty five percent off on any order if you go to Grady's with the promo code uh, TPM. Again, that's Grady's with promo code TPM. And I guess that's that's about all we got. All right. Today. See you next week. All right. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 